KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday, May 13th. San Diego streets remain deadly for pedestrians. More on that next, just after the headlines. Governor Gavin Newsom says the statewide mask mandate will end for almost all circumstances on June 15th. That's the date set for the state to lift all remaining stay-at-home orders. The governor says the world will be, quote, a lot like the world we entered into before the pandemic. Children between the ages of 12 and 15 in San Diego County can now get the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. The children will need approval of a parent or guardian, and they must show ID that proves their age. That news came as the county reached a COVID-19 milestone on Wednesday. Here's County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Today we're only reporting 94 positive cases. Uh, You have to go back almost a full calendar year uh, to, uh, to have a day in which we were under 100 Uh, positive cases. California Attorney General Rob Bonta announced the launch of the Racial Justice Bureau this week. It will help the Federal Department of Justice investigate hate crimes and white supremacist organizations in the state. Here's Bonta. Throughout California's history, too many of us felt the sting of hate and discrimination. And the fact is that no part of California is immune to hate. The Bureau's creation comes after a spike in incidents of violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders across the country. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. In 2015, San Diego adopted Vision Zero, a campaign to end all traffic deaths and serious injuries by 2025. But five years into it, the city has made little, if any, progress towards that goal. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen has a closer look at why that is. On November 18, 2019, 66-year-old Mai Lee was walking from her doctor's office to a pharmacy on El Cajon Boulevard in the Little Saigon District. As she was crossing the street, not in a crosswalk, the driver of an SUV struck and killed her. Mai Lee, that was a, a tragedy, and it reminded the city, it reminded all of us that this El Cajon Boulevard is very dangerous. Tram Lam is president of the Little Saigon Foundation, a nonprofit that works to promote and beautify the neighborhood. She and other civic and business leaders have long been calling for more crosswalks and slower speeds on El Cajon Boulevard, which is one of the city's deadliest corridors. She sees jaywalking all the time, and she understands why. The distance between um, two crosswalks um, is very far, so that's the reason why it's make it harder for people to um, a pedestrian to cross the street so they'd rather jaywalk and um, that create a very dangerous um, environment for the driver and also for the pedestrian themselves. My Lee's death is even more tragic because she died in an area where the city has already planned for safety improvements. 
A 2017 study recommended narrowing the lanes to slow down traffic, which often exceeds 40 miles per hour. It also recommended more crosswalks and a raised median, but none of the study's recommendations have been implemented, not even after Miley's death. These are the dangerous uh, situations that people have to live through every single day, and then our elected official is not doing anything about it. They're actually going out there and talk to people, and people reflect and voice their, their concern, but their concern is not being heard. This is despite the city launching a program in 2015 called Vision Zero. It's an ambitious goal of eliminating traffic deaths and serious injuries within 10 years. But we're halfway through and the numbers haven't gone down. In 2015, there were 58 traffic deaths within city limits. In 2020, deaths went up to 61. We do see year-to-year uh, -year fluctuation. Of course, we want to see uh, all serious injuries and fatalities trending towards zero. Everett Hauser is a city traffic engineer. He says his department has done what it can within the budget that the mayor and city council have provided. That's included new crosswalks, bike lanes, and other safety measures. Still, he admits it took a while for the Vision Zero program to ramp up. But every year we conduct uh, additional analysis uh, evaluating high crash locations, and then as well as uh, some of the latest we've done with our systemic safety analysis is looking at uh, ways to improve safety city system-wide across the city. We're not meeting the mark. We need to do better. I've brought hopefully a new attitude, new energy to this issue. Mayor Todd Gloria blames the halting progress on his predecessor, Kevin Faulkner, and what he calls a lack of urgency on making streets safer. Uh, the question is how much time do we have to actually effectuate those changes? My hope is to have as much time as possible because some of this stuff is difficult because it requires a lot of process and we're quickly running out of time. Frequently, Vision Zero projects run into community opposition because of parking and traffic concerns. A protected bike lane might require removing parking. A wider sidewalk might require reducing the number of travel lanes. Tram Lamb of the Little Saigon Foundation says if taking space away from cars means fewer people in her community dying, she's okay with it. We need to start uh, redesign and rethink about our street and our city to increase the, the quality of life for the people and make it as safe as it can be for, um, for everybody that's using them. Because a street and a sidewalk is not just only for cars, but also for people as well. And that reporting from KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. On Tuesday night, San Diego Unified School District announced plans to diversify the ranks of teachers and administrators in the county. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has more. Currently, about 76% of San Diego Unified students identify as people of color, while just 35% of teachers are people of color. During the school board's regular meeting Tuesday, district officials detailed plans to narrow that gap. School board president Richard Barrera says the change is needed. Leadership in the district, our principals, uh, our, our top-level administrators that you know come from the experience and understand the experience of our students, uh, we think leads to better uh, teaching practices, but also is um, more inspiring and more motivating to uh, students uh, to see somebody who, who um, you know, reflects their experiences. The plan includes an incentive program for current San Diego Unified students to enter the teaching profession. 
Students will be able to start their teacher training during high school and be guaranteed employment with the district if they complete the program. San Diego Unified's Chief Human Resources Officer, Acacia Feed, said that while state law prohibits the district from setting quotas for employee demographics, these efforts will allow it to organically grow a more diverse workforce. We're paying attention to our own practices. We're paying attention to what we're doing, what we're, um, what we're saying, who we're working with, and we're ensuring that our practices are not being, um, our actions don't reflect systemic systems of racism and bias. Student board member Zachary Patterson applauded the effort to retain students within the community as teachers. And I think it's a unique approach that really ensures that we have this community advocacy and what we have this community-based support, which is so critical because who better to speak on something, who better to teach a student than a student that actually went to that school. With these plans, the district hopes to add 3% more teachers and administrators of color each year for the next five years. And that was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. The number of unaccompanied migrant children crossing the U.S.-Mexico border decreased in April, bucking a months-long upward trend. That's according to an announcement on Tuesday from Customs and Border Protection. KPBS's Max Revlin-Nadler has this update from the San Diego Convention Center, where many of those unaccompanied migrant children are being sheltered. The amount of unaccompanied children crossing the border fell 9 percent in April, from a record high in March. California's own border sector saw just a modest rise in the number of apprehensions of unaccompanied minors. Those numbers held steady for April. But even without the rise along its own border, San Diego has played a vital role in sheltering thousands of these unaccompanied children. Since late March, the San Diego Convention Center has sheltered 2,629 unaccompanied children in total, according to numbers obtained by KPBS. 989 children have been reunited with family members or sponsors, with those numbers increasing in recent days as the process has been streamlined by the federal government. The average stay is 30 days, while the average population of children has hovered around 1,100, 400 fewer than the convention center's capacity. Currently, 71 children are in isolation after testing positive for COVID-19. Emergency intake sites like the Convention Center have allowed the federal government to quickly move children out of ill-equipped Border Patrol facilities along the border. Currently, only a few hundred children are in those facilities, and none for more than 72 hours. Now the job becomes getting these children out of facilities like the Convention Center and other temporary spaces before they revert back to their original uses. In San Diego, that will be in mid-July, meaning that case managers there have eight weeks to reunite children with families or sponsors before they lose the space to hold them, something they'll accomplish if current trends hold. It might be grim to reduce an issue like this down to numbers, but that's essentially what it's become for the Biden administration and their local partners. Right now, the math is adding up for the Biden administration, with cities like San Diego playing a huge role in helping unaccompanied children find shelter during this turbulent time along the border. And that was KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler. Coming up, the 48-hour film project and the San Diego International Film Festival have collaborated to put together a shorts fest highlighting the works of local filmmakers. We'll have more from KPBS's Beth Accomando on that next, just after the break.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The 48-hour film project and the San Diego International Film Festival have been partnering for years to highlight short films made by local filmmakers. This Friday at noon, the best of the pandemic short films will be available in a virtual shorts fest. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with 48-hour film project organizer Duane Trammell and filmmaker Christina Ruby. Dwayne, the 48-hour film project is going to be having a special screening showcase at the San Diego International Film Festival this year. So for people who may not be familiar, explain what a 48-hour film project is all about. Sure. Well, the 48-hour film project is in its 20th year. It's a worldwide filmmaking competition where teams of filmmakers in, in certain cities around the world, and there's about 130 or so cities, on a competition weekend, teams of filmmakers meet and they're given a a line of dialogue, a character and a prop, and they draw a random film genre, two different film genres. And they have 48 hours from 7 p.m. on Friday to 7.30 p.m. on Sunday, which is an additional half hour that was historically for travel time. Of course, these days we kind of do it electronically, but they still get the extra half hour. So they have 48 hours to write, shoot, edit, and turn in a complete film. And then the films are judged locally with the winning film going on to Filmapalooza, which is held in some city around the world somewhere. From all those films, a winning film is chosen as a grand champion. So Christina, for a filmmaker, why do you want to put yourself through the ordeal of trying to crank something out in just 48 hours? What's the fun or the challenge of that? That's actually the best part of it is that, you know what I like to tell people? So when I put out the movie that we made, I like to tell them, if you think it's amazing, we made this in 48 hours. And if you don't think it's great, just remember we made this in 48 hours. So it like like buys you a lot of flexibility and credence from people that they're like, oh, wow, you made this in 48 hours. That's amazing. But that's part of the appeal for me is that you get basically carte blanche to do whatever you want to do because there's really no downside doing something awesome in that time frame. Like with my film specifically, we made it a one shot, which is where the bulk of it, there's no edits because I wanted a thing that I was like, we're gonna get it. Like we rehearsed all day, we five of our seven minutes is a one shot because I just wanted to see it and have it all come together. But yeah, I'm not in it for the long haul. I want the instant gratification. And in running this program, what is it that you see in filmmakers that comes out when you force them to kind of work with these restrictions of time and character and a dialogue line and, you know, a prop? Uh, the, The single biggest thing is the creativity. A side note to the creativity is just the teamwork and how everyone just loves doing this competition. I know as a, as a film student, I did it right after I graduated San Diego State, and I feel like I learned as much doing the 48-hour film project as I did in any of the film projects that I did in, in school. The compression of time forces you to be creative and to make decisions very quickly. And Christina, your film that is going to screen is called Sound Bites. So what were the parameters you had to work with in terms of character and prop and line? 
I think we'd use a musical instrument as our prop, which lucky for me, one of my cast members played the violin and not very well. So it actually worked out perfectly <laughs> for what I needed it for. And then you, we had to use a character, which was, um, I know we used Rocky, but I think you could also use Raquel. And then the line was, did you wash your hands? Cause I think we were mid COVID at the time and everybody was mindful of that thing. So in the beginning, I bemoaned the fact that I had to use all of those things because I'm like, ah, you're holding me back creatively. But in the end, I actually really like that they're in there. There's little sort of Easter eggs, except when you put it out for people who are outside of the 48, you have to sort of give them context of why this person is playing a violin in the middle of whatever it is that you're talking about, because it really doesn't make sense outside of the 48. And one of the things that you're also restricted by is you draw a genre. Yes. So, um, and they give you two. And so uh, ours this year were the, it was horror and film noir. You've been bit. So I took the horror route. I actually, I took liberties with the horror because it, for me, it was more of a, Mine was a movie within a movie, so they were filming a zombie movie, which was horror. And then in addition to that, it was supposed to be the main character's like worst nightmare, worst day, sort of like his life falling apart. So it wasn't traditional horror and that you see like ghosts and zombies and all that stuff. So I sort of took liberties with that. Are all the films that are showing at the San Diego International Film Festival, were these shot during pandemic or also outside of pandemic? Everything that shot was shot during the pandemic, for sure, yeah. I want to make a comment about the prop, because this is something that we struggle with every year, is having a fun prop that cannot be used as a weapon, not easily used as a weapon, because so many teams want to use their prop as a weapon. So every year, like one year we had marshmallows, and of course someone died by marshmallow, if you can imagine that even happening. So, But yeah, all the films were shot during the pandemic. They were all shot last year at the height of the pandemic, actually. And uh, we actually, uh, you know, speaking about the pandemic, we do have guidelines in place and actually an online certification that the filmmakers can get to say that they are doing safe set practices. And when are you going to be having your next event in terms of people actually making the films? We're looking at September this year and the same with last year because we were hoping that we would get to a point where theaters would open up last year and we would be able to have at least some form of in-person screening. And, you know, if we can't get a theater, then it'll be online like it was last year. And I guess mid-case scenario is that we do a limited in-person screening with an also uh, online presence as well. And Dwayne, if people want to find out about participating in the 48-Hour Film Project, where can they get that information? So if they go to www.48hourfilm.com slash San Diego, that's where they can find out uh, information about the competition. Right now it says that no dates have been chosen yet. That will be updated as soon as uh, we, we know exactly what we're going to be doing this year. Um, I also want to mention for beginning filmmakers, we encourage beginning filmmakers. And we, if you email us and tell us that you're a beginning filmmaker, we'll work to get you hooked up with a mentor, somebody who's done it before, to help you through that process. So it's a great, we have uh, high school teams that do it, and, and even our youngest filmmaker who formed his own team was nine years old and was very close to winning Best Film. He, he did a great film his first time. Of course, yeah, he was working with his family and everything, but he was the team leader at nine years old.
is amazing. <laughs> well, great. Well, thank you both very much for talking about the 48-hour film project showcase. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Duane Trammell and Christina Ruby. The 48-hour film project Shorts Block is available online this Friday at noon through the San Diego International Film Festival. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.